When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one film at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, a freewheeling Rob Kelly. And for our first episode of 2023, I thought we'd do something a little different. We're going to be talking about No Direction Home, Bob Dylan, the 2005 documentary. And uh, joining me is returning Bobcat, Melissa Tomzak. Hi, Melissa. Hello. Thank you so much for having me again. I am so excited. It's such a good start to the year. Uh, I am I am also very excited to be talking about this. Back when you were on the show in 2021, was it? I think it was 2021. Yeah, uh, we, and we talked about Mr. Tambourine Man, and of course, I asked you, you know, what was? How did you become a fan of Bob? Like I do every new guest, and you kind of had a different uh, route in that it was your dad who introduced you to Bob Dylan through Don't Look Back through through that documentary. And then you became a fan uh, that way. And I thought that was such an interesting way of becoming a fan of his, especially when, and we talked about this on, on the episode that like, you know, that's kind of like a little hard to take with him because he's kind of a jerk <laughs> in a lot of that movie. So I was sort of shocked that you could become a fan. I mean, the, the, the work is still the work, but uh, there are a lot of people who had kind of you know, bad associations with Bob. If you've only ever seen it from that film. And we talked about whether you had seen no direction home. The, the Scorsese documentary and you had not seen it to that point right right yeah right okay so you hadn't seen it and I was like oh well you are in for a treat because if you like don't look back I think you're gonna love No Direction Home especially made by Martin Scorsese so now you finally had a chance to see it and we're that's what we're here to talk about and I thought you know let's start the new year with something a little different instead of just a song let's talk about this three hour three plus hour <laughs> magnum opus no direction home. So I uh, let's see, where would be the first great place to start? Like you said to me off air, uh, that this film now, after you saw it, changed your view of how you thought about Bob Dylan. So explain that to me. Like, how, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, it's, it's funny because I remember, you know, we had the whole conversation about, uh, how I hadn't seen the documentary and I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I'm, I'm pretty, certain that at that point I had seen Rolling Thunder Review. So I had seen Scorsese's other documentary mm. and um and I loved it. I love Rolling Thunder Review too. Hint hint maybe another time we can talk <laughs> about it. But um I, I loved it so much and uh, of course I love uh Don't Look Back and I, I had messaged you being like, oh I finally got to watch uh No Direction Home and right. I loved it. And I was looking at that and I to be honest with you, I'm not sure exactly what I was thinking about um, the first time I watched it, like what changed, because, you know, it's maybe been a year or so. Um, but while I was watching in preparation to come on here, it sort of made me think more about Dylan as someone uh, like all or most of us, most of us at least, who was pushed through a scene more than he pushed through it. And I think before I was thinking about it the other way around, um, and whether it's true or not, he describes a lot of what he did in those days as coincidental, coincidental or almost thoughtless. Like he said, I don't know, I just write these songs and <laughs> in the future, people are going to interpret it this way. Or, you know, he was really resistant to interpretation and he still is. Um, and he followed what called to him and meanings and intentions otherwise seem incidental. At least that's almost how they're portrayed in the film. Uh, and I don't mean this in a naive way 
uh, on my or his part. Obviously, I knew before that he's just a person like you or me. And we rarely have a big plan for uh, where we're going or what we're doing, especially at the age that he is, you know, when he first got started. So and, and I don't believe that he went around writing without a thought in his head, obviously, either. I think that he knew what he was writing and what he was writing about more than he cares to admit to. Uh, but I think the film humanizes him more than one would think upon, upon first viewing. He's such a mysterious figure, and he remains that way by the end of the doc. But uh, I don't know, watching him talk and joke and hearing stories about him sort of inherently forces him down to earth. And that's I feel like that's what sort of changed while watching that documentary is. Um, it's less strange than uh, than Rolling Thunder, which is sort of a whole it's a no, whole nother piece of art i think uh performance art almost and then this is more of a straightforward documentary i think so i don't know that's what it did to me oh you use the word humanize and i think that's right on the money uh it, and i've mentioned this in other episodes when this movie has come up the ultimate quote i think about this film is that from the one from al cooper or Al Cooper, I guess, was asked about this film or, or something. I, you know, maybe, uh, and, and he said that he felt that the, the, the most, uh, you know, sort of potent part of the film was it just features extended scenes of Bob talking normal. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's like, yeah, I think that is this film. I think anyone would agree that is this film's ace in the hole. And, and it's Corsese wisely starts the film with it i mean you get the opening credits but then bang we're right into bob as he looked first of all the these were uh, you know for any people who don't know these recordings were not shot by scorsese they were actually mm-hmm. shot by his manager or his whatever whatever the term is jeff rosen for and they i don't think it was started with anything particularly in mind it was more like let's just start getting this stuff down which i can only imagine how hard that had to have been because we know bob isn't interested in that but it was done in the 90s so i mean some of this footage i'm not exactly sure when it was i don't know the the, the dates of how long it took i mean was it, it was started in 95 but it did take five years 10 you know i don't know but scorsese actually wasn't isn't interviewing bob that's not him that bob is sort of talking to but we don't as fans we don't get the chance to see bob for extended periods of time just being a regular guy, just talk. I mean, of course, he's not a regular guy, and he's talking about, as you say, this creation of something that hardly anybody can, you know, ever aspire to. But nevertheless, he's telling jokes. He's talking about old girlfriends. You know, uh, I met a girl named Echo. That was an unusual name, Echo. You know, uh, and and you know, as we all know, Bob is, of course, very funny. Like he is one of the. He is his his sense of comedic timing is second to none <laughs> for someone who doesn't do it professionally. He's very funny. But when you see him in concert, you know, yeah, he's singing and he tells jokes about, you know, what town I'm in and Rocky or whatever cheesy jokes he's got. But there's still that kind of, you know, shield up a little. And here he's just sitting in this dark room telling stories about his past. And it's a large chunk of the film is that. And as much as I enjoy the rest of the film, and we'll talk about all that, that to me is the best part of it, of just seeing him just talk about his life and talk about the people that were important to him from that time. And that, I don't know how much Scorsese, I mean, this film runs, I said, about over three hours. 
I don't know how much of that Scorsese left on the cutting room floor or did he use virtually every frame of it because I it, 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 that stuff feels like gold to me of just watching Bob just sit and talk because he's highly entertaining to listen to. I completely agree. And I, I hate to admit it a little bit, but the, I think the first time I watched this and his, his voice comes in before we see him mm-hmm. and I almost didn't recognize his voice. Like I wasn't a hundred percent sure that it was him. <laughs> and like you said, it's so weird that he, to watch him just sitting there speaking normally and, and telling stories and everything. And I agree. I think the way, uh, the moments where we're able, where Scorsese just holds on to him talking for as long as possible. And there's even, in order to do that, he has jump cuts sort of in the middle of, mm-hmm. of Bob talking. And I think that's, like you said, to avoid maybe leaving a lot on the cutting room floor because Scorsese, I think, is a Dylan fan, just like a lot of people and knows that people would, people would want to see that and hear it and, um, hear what he has to say and how he thinks about things. And yeah, he's so, I just, when I was taking notes, one of the things I wrote was just, I just said, Bob is so funny because he's hilarious. And I think Scorsese also understands that because there are some cuts in the film that made me laugh out loud. Like when I, I don't know why I can't remember who's, who's talking about it, but one of the musicians is talking about how he came back to, uh, Duluth or he came back to Minnesota or something having learned how to play the guitar incredibly well like 10 times better than he had when he left and it only been a couple months and making jokes about a joke about how he had made a deal at a crossroad and then it hard cuts to Bob being like oh yeah that's about when I went and made that deal at the crossroads <laughs> like this like it's so funny he's so funny I love that guy that that's something. Have you seen other Scorsese documentaries? I know you already mentioned the Rolling Thunder review, but have you seen any of his other documentaries? I so I haven't seen uh, Living in the Material World, the George Harrison one, because I am kind of scared to watch it because I love George Harrison, and um, I've heard sort of mixed things about it. But um, yeah, I. I don't think I've seen any of his other ones. I'm trying to think what other documentaries he's done. Well, but, he's done. Um, he did the Rolling Stones one. The, the, I think Shine a right. Light. He did that and one. And the Last um, Waltz. Yeah, That's, right. I'm of course, he did. The, of course, he yeah. did the Last Waltz. But um, he's also um, responsible for a almost four hour documentary called "A Personal Journey Through American Movies" with Martin Scorsese, where oh. he just talks about the films that he grew up with and influenced him. And uh, this is something he made it in 1995. So it's him on camera. And then they cut to various scenes and then he talks about them. It is um, one of my favorite things. Like it's one of my favorite like movies of all time. I watch it at least once a year, every year. It It is like going to it for someone who can't afford to go to film school. I would imagine this is your vert. This is how you do it. It is so, I think you will, you will love it because you said you talked about like your, your, you have the criterion disc and stuff. Like, I think this is right up your alley. It is because he doesn't talk about the stuff that everyone talks about. You know, he doesn't talk about Casablanca and the stagecoach and Citizen Kane. Not that, you know, not that that would be bad, but he talks about a lot of more obscure stuff. And I personally have gone through. Uh, there's a list on Wikipedia for this documentary of all the films cited. And I've been going through them once every couple of months. I check one off because it's like, yeah. it is so 
fascinating. And the thing that excites me about Scorsese with these documentaries is that, I mean, obviously he's a genius filmmaker, um, all of his fiction films, but he's, he also did um, public speaking about Fran Lebowitz, which I loved. And then he did the Netflix series with her called pretend it's a city. And his documentaries to me are very alive. They're very vital. They're very, I mean, he, I mean, he was basically sanctioned here by the Dylan camp, mostly as an editor and compiler, not a director, which again, kind of, you know, exemplifies the rarefied world that Bob Dylan lives in <laughs> that you can, you can call Martin Scorsese to kind of oh like, God. Hey, we have a bunch of footage. You want to put something to get, you want to put this together for us? And Martin Scorsese is like, yeah, all right, I'll do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, wow. I, 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 I love Martin Scorsese so much as a director i you know i love his his narrative films and everything but something that i love even more about him is is how he talks about film and how he regards cinema and the thoughtfulness and the knowledge that he has and how he shares it with people and he tries to make it accessible to everyone even you know if someone's reluctant to watch any foreign cinema um and i that documentary that you were talking about with him just talking about film sounds absolutely like a dream. I don't know how I've never heard of that, but it's, um, it's unfortunately, it's a little hard to find. It's, it's only on DVD. It's never been put on Blu-ray. Um, it is available. Um, it's really, can't even really stream it anywhere except for uh canopy, which was that, that free oh, streaming service yeah. that goes through the live goes through your local library. If you have a library card, yeah. you can sign up for canopy. It's there. It, it exists there in three parts. And um, like I said, every once in like once a year, I, I pull it out and I watch it because it is utterly fascinating. But it said his, you know, his some directors, I think when they when they're doing documentaries, it's maybe like they're doing it because it's I can kind of, it's hard to get one of my narrative films made so I can get this other thing made a little easier. But he brings all of his sort of Scorsese-ness to, <laughs> to these documentaries. And yeah. uh, again, especially with the the rhythm of his editing. I mean, I mean, he obviously co-edited, you know, maybe not officially, but co-edited all his yeah. films with with his director, with a, a film of Schumacher. Yeah. But here, I mean, as you mentioned, like, there's a bunch of very funny cuts. And mm-hmm. he gives you the context where Bob talks about something, and then we cut to some piece of music that he is sort of referring to. And it goes back to that. And it really does paint – it really – brings you back to this time of like what these influences were and especially i think part of maybe part of the reason that they started it in the 90s and not to be kind of kind of grim but in the 90s all of these people that he grew up with were still around yeah you know they were still around and it's kind of like well let's get the footage while we kind of can because eventually some of these people are not going to be yeah right Ginsburg and and even yeah. now Suze Rotolo like a lot of these people are not with us anymore and they're gone but here we've got them all t- and man I mean we'll again we'll talk about it more like who was our favorite but I I I always wonder when you are someone uh, who like grew up with somebody famous right because we see some of his high school friends you have to wonder do those people kind of get tired of only ever being contacted. Because they are in the reflected glory of somebody famous. Does that get old? For somebody, right. you know what I mean. You know, the phone yeah. rings. You're like, yeah, I, yeah. You know, <laughs> like I wonder. <laughs> I mean, hmm. it's funny because I think about that a lot actually when it comes to Joan Baez, because which 
it sounds a little weird to say at first because she's so celebrated in of it in of herself. Joan Baez, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and she yeah, and you know, she was famous before he was and everything. But I think a l- lot of people nowadays sort of she's reduced to Bob Dylan's former lover or right. her most famous you know her f- most famous song right now nowadays is diamonds and rust which is about bob right and i think this was you know maybe two years ago or something but i remember there was may- maybe it was an article about um rolling thunder review but it described joan as uh joan baez comma bob dylan's former lover comma, oh, blah, 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 instead of you know <laughs> it, which is so insane to me and it seems what I really like about, I mean, she's such an incredible part of this documentary, but um, what I love about her in it is that she seems to be one of the only people that kind of sees through him a little bit <laughs> and isn't completely, um, she's charmed by him, but she's not completely hypnotized by him in the same way that some other people around him seem to be or seem to have been at the time. Like, simply because, I don't know, she she was the one that, seem to have lifted him up along with her and i really i i do think about that all the time with her just because it, it's pretty frustrating i think a lot of people know her now through him um rather than in her own right which god she's amazing yeah yeah i'm a good lord i'm sure i'm sure that the, the joan baez comma a former lover but i'm sure a guy <laughs> wrote that headline uh <laughs> she has that marvelous anecdote in the movie where she says that um that Bob brings out, especially obviously the young, the young Bob brings out the mothering instincts in mm-hmm. some, in people in, and in, and can bring it out in people who didn't know they had it even. And mm-hmm. she, she, she talks about that. He, he did that for her and she's almost kind of like able to step back. Cause I mean, obviously she's got the distance of time now to look back and be almost like not ashamed of her own behavior, but not, I don't mean that at all, but like a little like, wow, he managed to bring something out of me that I didn't know was capable. And I'm looking back on it now, like, wow, I really, I really went down that path. And I didn't want to expect that because she said, you want to take care of him because he has this kind of like ragamuffin, helpless ragamuffin kind of persona, which as we know is kind of a persona. It's not. Yes, exactly. And it's so funny because she, um, her saying that you're so right that she, she's almost saying, Oh my God, how did that work on me? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and I, it's so true. Cause I think, and another thing to, to like, just mention Martin Scorsese again, really quick is that, um, especially in the first part, you know, the divided between the part one and part two, especially in the first part, so many of his editing choices when they're talking about his earlier life, uh, either his childhood or right when he was starting to get into the folk scene really tr- brings out and is trying to put in the forefront that so much of what he's done or was doing at that point have been an act. And I don't mean that in a way where it, he's a phony. I just mean it in a way where as we sort of, you can hear with um, his first album and I'm sure you've talked about it a million times, just he puts on that like twang and he dresses like Woody Guthrie and that's just not who he was. Um, and, you know, I think that's a, maybe a balance between he was trying to figure himself out, like he's said a lot and, and between just wanting to imitate his heroes. And she does seem like uh, Joan seems like she can see through that. I mean, her imitation of him is spot on. And <laughs> even during Rolling Thunder, her dressing up like him and, and everything. I think that's, 
she seems to be the only one that can kind of call him out on on his shit without him getting <laughs> mad about it. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally, totally. Yeah, she she seems she has that ability to kind of just be like, all right, Bob, all right, you know. And he can't <laughs> yeah. because I think it's like they've known each other just too well. Once you, I think once you know somebody past a certain point it's hard to go back and pretend otherwise you know what i mean like you, they, this person has your number one way or the other you know and it's it, you can't you know bob can put on that mask but she knows it's like bob come on you know like and she's and and she again she's also very funny like she, i love when she tells the story about the uh she says she goes to like when i go to like a in or uh you know a, a, a whatever it is whatever the term is and she's like there's all these old hippies and they're like is bob gonna be here and she's like no you idiot he's never gonna be <laughs> He never was and never will be. <laughs> yeah. She's she's so kind of like, all right, I'm done with this. I'm just kind yeah. of done with you constantly worrying if Bob Dylan's going to show up to this. He's <laughs> never going to be here. That's not his thing. He doesn't want to do it. Yeah. And, and it's funny because that sort of stuff, like her awareness of, of other people uh, being like that, expecting him to be at a protest or something, which uh, he didn't really do back in the day and, and stopped doing pretty quickly. Um, it almost makes it, and uh, like you said, the uh, advantage of hindsight, you know, all the time passing, it seems like it made her and other people around him see their own phoniness in a way, like saying, oh, I was really into the protest stuff and um, I really thought that he should be doing this because it benefited the protesting and and our cause and stuff, which I don't know. I, I wouldn't say it's phony because th- what they were protesting about and talking about were worthy things. But at the same time, it maybe with him and the perspective of time allows them to say, yeah, you know, maybe it, it was a little bit much. Like we were trying to force him to do something that he didn't want to be doing. And there's no reason we should have been forcing him sort of thing. Yeah, again, it gets into that a little. There's that I forget who tells the who was it that tells the story, but there's the bit about that someone ran into Peter Paul and Mary uh, after they had been to like Florida or something, and they're back in New York, and someone is a friend with them and sees them, and they're like, "Why aren't you went to Florida and you're not like tan? Like, what? How did you know? Why didn't you go outside?" And she said, "I think it's Mary Travers that says." Well, our manager, which is Albert Grossman, who, of course, was Bob's manager, wanted us to, to, to you know, have that persona that we're kind of these in inside, you know, creatures. And we don't, oh, you know, and so we he kept us inside. So we don't we didn't pick up a tan because that would be bad for our image. And you're like, <laughs> oh, Lord, you know, like, what? yeah, oh. the the it exposes the commercial was uh, commercialism a little bit of, of that of that time as well as it, them earnestly believing it. And that it kind of reminds me, I don't mean to go off on a tangent, but um, have you seen Inside Lewin Davis? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, it reminds me, I love that film. It's one of my favorites ever. And it reminds me of that scene where Lewin is meeting with, who is like Dave Van Rock sort of um, character, but he meets with Bud Grossman, with Albert Grossman. And he tells him to say out of a, shave his beard down to a mustache and stay out of the sun for a little bit. Um, and it's such a, I love that. I, I love that film. And I love that scene so much because it, it does sort of show uh, for Lou and the character, not to get it on to Lou and Davis, but um, it shows that, that um, commercialism in the folk scene is supposed to be this 
bohemian beatnik sort of thing and wherever it's all peace and love and everybody is trying to help their fellow man but in reality the people that got signed um got signed because they're willing to sort of um submit to something in a way uh, mm-hmm. and maybe bob maybe that helped bob because bob didn't really care about that which is great yeah right i mean albert grossman uh i mean who died in the died in the 80s um so was not available uh, for this i mean i that would have i would have loved to have seen him talk in this film about his relationship uh, by the way but albert grossman died on a plane flight for real? um yeah died in mid plane flight and that that stuff always is like so weird to me because i'm like imagine like sitting in a seat on a plane and the guy next to you just dies like what yeah, <laughs> like, you can't you can't just land you can't get him you can't get yeah, out of there like, oh, oh god it's the worst flight ever <laughs> like what they yeah. do? i don't know what they do when that happens like did they have like a they they take the body somewhere like i don't even know but anyway, i yeah. i hate sorry I, hold your thought but i'll just say really quick i heard that if someone dies and they're in their seat or something they just cover it like they put a blanket on them like they're sleeping <laughs> because to not distress people around them i swear oh. i don't know if that's true but i heard oh that i mean it makes sense what else are you gonna do but yeah that, i just remembered reading that that he died on a plane flight and, and while him and bob were still going back and forth and with lawsuits mm-hmm. uh you know you're talking a good 15 years afterwards and they were still fighting things out in court but anyway um, you mentioned Dave Van Ronk, and he's in this film a lot, and he's one of my favorite of the non-Dylan talking heads because he just seems like he's having a good time. Like he, you know, I mean, there there seems to be maybe with some of the other people there is a little, you know, like rueful, like well, you know, Bob went on to this huge thing and or whatever. But Dave Van Ronk seems to be enjoying himself he tells that story about that bob you know that he was the one that came up with that new arrangement of house of the rising sun right. and then bob took it from dave van ronk and then they're at a party and bob says hey do you mind if i record that and <laughs> dave van ronk is like I, i'd rather you not because i'm gonna do it and bob's like uh-oh because he had a pretty <laughs> tough <laughs> so, yeah and then and then the animals took it from bob right yeah, and the animals took it from bob and he he thought that was really funny that he's like well i got bob hosed me and then the animals hosed bob so <laughs> yeah, great yeah. um did you have a favorite of the non-bob uh interview subjects was there one that every time they were you returned to them you were like oh yeah oh, yeah give me more of footage of this person yeah, I mean, we, we've we already, like you said, I mean, Dave Van Ronk was great. And just because of his, he was his jovial nature, I guess. But I love, I always love hearing from Joan Baez. I think she's so, she, I don't know, she always, she's so cool. And she always hmm. knows what's going on. Like, she knows where it's at. And um, one of my favorite parts of the whole documentary, and probably my favorite uh, sort of music performance out of all of the footage and stuff is just her singing four letter word mm. um at you know in the present day during the interview and i don't know if that was planned or she just said oh i could just play it cuz her voice still so beautiful oh it's so and, powerful oh Amazing. my gosh yeah and she i don't like a lot of i'm of the belief that no one sings dylan like dylan i don't like a lot of covers of his stuff but whenever she sings him she brings such a feeling to it her voice just carries so much weight to me i love it so much i love her and pete seeger was great i loved every time pete seeger came on yeah when she sings that uh yeah that that's a i mean she's just sitting in like her kitchen or something it's not like she's in a professional set i mean they've got i'm sure they have you know very high-end 
recording equipment, but um, yeah, it seems it does seem very impromptu, and just the power of her voice, and just with the guitar, you're like, man, I've I've been to concerts that don't sound that good, you know, let alone yeah. <laughs> just oh, one person man. with a guitar sitting in her kitchen just banging it out. You're like, wow, this is this is just amazing. Um, I loved hearing from Suze Rotolo who unfortunately yes. is, is no longer with us, but like, that's very true. Right. Cause she doesn't really, she didn't really do interviews before then. Right. Right. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, that's, that's another thing where she, again, a lot of these people have the, have the, um, the ability to, I mean, so there's been distance, there's been 20 years in a lot of cases for some of these, some people, 30 years. So, you know, whatever wounds might still, you know, might've been left, in the sixties have healed over, uh, you know, if you're healthy, they've healed over because it's been so long. But if there's anybody that I could imagine might be permanently pissed at him, it would be her. Yeah. Because of yeah. what he rigged that ballad in plain D, that song I still say is like my, my almost my least favorite of all of his songs. <laughs> you know, that was a dick. He himself said, boy, I must have been a real asshole for writing that one. And <laughs> I could see her kind of being like, I'm never talking to this guy again. And, and then I don't want to give interviews where it seems like I'm benefiting from it. You know, I'm cashing in on it. Laura's no, I'm sure she could have, I'm sure she got offered all sorts of book contracts. You know, what was it? I mean, you're on the cover of freewheeling for Pete's sake. I mean, yeah. You're immortalized, but she seems very, uh, she's always smiling in all the clips and she seems just very like, okay. Yeah, that was, I, that was part of my life. And, and, you know, I look back on it now, but it, she didn't seem at all, she seemed to have a very warm reminiscent of that time. And it wasn't like any sort of like, well, that was the best part of it. I was like, no, I've gone on and lived a, I've lived a full life, but that was a part of it that we're here. So she just seemed very centered and very okay with it all. And to me, that was sort of pleasurable to watch as opposed to somebody who, you know, might seem a little like angry or bitter or whatever. Right. Yeah. I totally agree. It's, it almost felt like, it's interesting like you said if if enough time passes um hopefully she wouldn't be too too angry still but at the same time i think that she would have a right to be if she was yeah and i think though it it was interesting she had so much warmth for um all the things that she was talking about it seemed like and that sort of reminds me i don't want to get too far ahead of myself but um it sort of her talking with the affection that she was almost, or just with the, I guess grace is maybe the word that she was speaking with, um, almost seemed like more of a reflection of her, her, uh, her affection for the time period of when they were living sort of in, you know, by slim means in New York and when they had first moved out there, when Bob first moved out there and they were, making their way and she was with him when he first started coming up and getting more famous and everything. And um, that, that sort of goes along to me this with the structure of the documentary itself, where the first part, part one of the documentary frames the Greenwich village folk scene and the folk scene in general with as this momentous, super uh, forward thinking, uh, always in motion scene where it's it's the place to be and everyone knows where it's at and uh it's super progressive and everything and then with part two it sort of introduces um with him going into electric and, and everything it 
reframes that era as um as the complete opposite of what they were fighting for in the first part Mm -hmm. right they were fighting for progress and social movement forward and, and change and everything and then in part two the second that bob starts to make a change for himself to decides to move on to do something else that's when they want to rein it back in they want to pull him back and want him to go in his mind at least backwards and i thought that was such i don't mean to change the subject too much but it it just makes me think of that like um just the way that scorsese structures it is so magnificent overall and scene to scene cutting and everything um just how you can rewire your thinking about that that crowd from part one to part two over three hours of thinking wow this was such a a a scene to be a part of and everyone wanted to be there and everyone wanted to see it and be around it just like they wanted to be around bob and then in part two being like these guys are kind of a drag you know Mm -hmm. they're the lame ones but yeah i don't know i i love that part and i think that Suze's interview sort of reflected that to me more than her affection toward bob it, it was felt like a re- uh, affection toward the folk scene in general. It's interesting. I hadn't really, next time I watch it, I'm, I'll have to watch it more with an eye towards that. Cause I hadn't really thought about how the it, 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 Scorsese definitely breaks it up. I mean, obviously it's broken up cause I think it, it ran originally on television yeah. and I think they ran it over like two nights or something. Cause it was part of the American Masters series. It was not, uh, it was a film. It's a film, but it wasn't released like into theaters as like one three and a half hour mm-hmm. piece or whatever. So they had to break it up. But I hadn't really thought about that. That it kind of does have a very distinct part one and part two. Um, one of the things that I, I found noticeable, uh, among other things, is the the editing of it was how Scorsese drops in the clips of Bob doing going having gone electric. Because uh, there's points where the film gets very quiet because it's someone talking. And then there's almost like this, he puts in a couple of seconds of silence and then it bang, it goes to Bob singing one of those, you know, on the 66 tour and not just singing, you know, via electric amplification, but like braying, like he's like, he, you know, he's, he's like (laughs) screaming it out and it's, I'm almost like, wow, he's really almost trying to kind of put across like, this is how discordant this music must have sounded to certain people because, you know, to to hear this kind of quiet. And then he's like, you know, how does it fit? Like screaming. (laughs) You're like, whoa, like, oh my God. And I will tell you, I, I found this out the hard way because a couple of years ago, I was watching this in bed, uh, after, after my now wife had gone to sleep and, that is not a film you want to watch if someone is laying next to you trying to sleep because the, the very, very noticeable sound changes will wake that person up. Right. It's yeah. very low, very low. And then, ah, you're like, oh, oh, sorry, sorry. And eventually I turned it off. I'm, I'm sorry. And, you know, it's, it's partly because they just cut the Bob just blaring, you know, almost, almost barely even singing at that point. He's just screaming it out over the, sat the racket that the band was making yeah for yeah exactly those that cutting to the super loud electric and everything it like you said it gives you sort of a at least a taste of of maybe what it felt like to be uh you know buying his records and experiencing that shift or even like being at the uh, newport folk festival and expecting him to be singing 
you know, uh, his early work, Masters of War and stuff, and then get the electric and the drums and everything. <laughs> and from the account of the um, interviewees during that scene, uh, it seemed like the equipment was not up to snuff too. No, so it just yeah. sound, it just sounded bad. Like it didn't just sound bad to them because they didn't like that music, but it just was not good quality speakers and, and amplifiers and everything. And I, I've always thought about that. I think that this film really does, uh, because of Scorsese's editing, the cutting it back and forth, um, does make you feel more like to, to really emphasize that how crazy this was because I feel like we look at it now and because largely because of him, people like him and and the Beatles and stuff like that. Um, we, I feel like we hear that kind of music and think, Oh yeah, it's, it's rock music. You know, it's, you know, people like it. It's kind of always been like that. And um, it's hard to communicate just how insane it would be to hear someone like Bob doing that. I don't know. It's, I can't even think of a comparison, <laughs> um, but I don't know. I feel like it would be like Dolly Parton doing heavy metal or something. <laughs> and, I'd like to but, hear that, um, actually, what that would sound like. But yeah. Yeah, honestly, she can do anything. She can do anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I yeah, I, I have a hard time sort of imagining that sometimes. And I think this documentary does do a good job of that. And I wrote, I did write down, especially in the first part, so many parts that like you were talking about where when he chooses to cut to the current day and tell me if you agree with it and almost because i'm not even 100 percent sure if i agree with this but um you know he's using the his going electric in 66 and the the footage from 66 to as a framing device almost for the entire um for the entire documentary and especially the first part and i feel like it cutting back and forth makes it feel like the folk scene and everything is leading up to that moment in rock history, almost like all of this, you know, him being in Duluth and him moving to New York and him getting into the folk scene and playing the, for the basket and all of that is all for the purposes of going up to the moment where he goes electric. And I don't know if I agree with that, but it's almost some, you know, looking at the editing, I it almost feels like that's what Scorsese is trying to say. I could see that. I could see, uh, yeah, I could see it because it, it's the, the, there's so many other people uh, that we see clips of either. I mean, th- first of all, it's amazing. Just some of this footage that's still around, you know what I mean? Like that it still survives. Like there's that great uh, clip of uh, uh, Peter Lafarge singing the, the ballad of Ira Hayes. And, you know, it looks it's black and white, but I mean, God, the film quality is looks, it looks brand new. And you're like, huh? you know, who shot that in like 1963 on a camera with high enough quality and then held on to it. For 50 years so it looks so crisp you know that's just kind of amazing but yeah it's like they, they throw so many people at you that if you're not familiar with this scene like you only know kind of bob dylan and maybe joan baez you know those are the names you've heard and you know he's talking about maria Muldauer and cisco houston and bessie smith and all or whatever and all of these all these clips we see of all these people that yeah it is kind of like okay but bob is the guy who shows up and all that stuff congeals into one guy. All of those influences, the Woody Guthrie, all of it, the Clancy Brothers, which is, I have to, the Clancy Brothers bit where Bob Dylan tells that story where he says, Liam says the whole, like, you know, no justice, no, yeah, whatever. And Bob's like, 
<laughs> right. <laughs> He's like, cool, groovy, man. <laughs> My yeah. favorite bit. Um, it makes me laugh so hard. It, but it's like, yeah, I kind of feel like it's like they are suggesting that, yeah, there was this giant movement and it was funneled in only somebody like Bob Dylan could have taken all that energy and all that intelligence and funneled it into the popular form, which was rock music. And then bang, that's part two. That's where we're going. But I hadn't really quite thought about that. But as I'm thinking of it, thinking it over, I'm like, yeah, it's because a lot of those people that are in the first part don't appear in the second part. Yeah, they're kind of in right. that first chunk. And then the second chunk is a whole other kind of different thing. I mean, there's some people, but it's a lot of the sort of quote unquote characters of the first part don't show up in the second part. Like it's like, okay, they're gone. They're, they're in the past. Now it's this other thing for Bob going forward in these years. Right. So it's, yeah, it's interesting you say that about it all, everything sort of coalescing into him and him bringing it into the popular form of, of rock music and stuff, because I think what I was sort of thinking about this time was how um, the way that it's framed or it with hindsight, I don't know how to fra- phrase this, but um, even though Bob was rejecting the folk music scene that he, you know, he says that he, he doesn't feel like he was a folk, he's a folk singer that he was ever part of it, but he, he obviously was. And yeah, that's a whole other thing, was, but like yeah. he, he, he was, and um, no matter what he says. But so even though he was rejecting the scene that he was brought up in, I feel like although he was transitioning to rock and electric, he was elevating folk alongside himself. Like it, he wasn't leaving folk behind to, in the dust to age and for people to not pay attention to it anymore. Sort of like, you know, people might forget about the bubble gum pop of, uh, like the Beatles or something, you know, of them mm-hmm. have used to doing that kind of stuff and then moving into rock. He wasn't forgetting it. He was, like you said, he was taking all those ideas and, and bringing them into this new form that he was just more interested in the moment. Um, and because I also feel like myself, I'm sure many people I know for a fact myself, and I know a couple of other people would not have discovered folk music in general, if not for him, because I discovered folk music from him i have a friend who said um she was like i was obsessed with bob dylan's music and i I couldn't stop listening to it and it was just the most amazing thing in the world to me and then she still likes him and then she was like but then i just realized i really like folk music it wasn't just it wasn't just him i just like folk music and so i think that's a part of it too and something that you know in hindsight that you're more one is more able to see that he wasn't leaving it behind. He was bringing it along with him, even if people at the time didn't like that. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, one of the it, this it would be cheap and easy uh, to get a laugh if you just wanted to show footage of those British kids in the '60s that went to his concerts and weren't happy. And there is some of that in the film, uh, where we see some of them saying, you know, the the one guy calls the band rubbish. You know, he says, uh, the the band was rubbish, you know, and it it would be again, it would be a cheap gag to kind of point back at these kids with hindsight for 30 years, 40 years hindsight and go, ah, ha, ha, look at these squares. You know, they were seeing the transformation. They were seeing the birth of a new art form, basically, and they were too lame to appreciate it. Well, that okay, 
maybe. I mean, and some of them clearly get really out of hand. One of them says, like, you know, he says something about uh, somebody should shoot him, which is like, whoa, you know, yeah. settle down. You know, I mean, again, that guy's on Twitter now, I'm sure. But like, <laughs> it, um, but like by show, I think by showing how kind of ear splitting the music could sound a little like you were talking about like the you know the the just the sound systems just weren't built for it they are giving that group a little bit of like okay yeah we look back on it now and we see that these kids were kind of not point not going in the direction that the culture was going but the film isn't like making fun of them or showing them to be lame and it's the same way with the folk artists because you could see that a lot of the folk artists could look at bob and be angry because it's almost like well he came in he dominated their field and then he took what from their percept perception took what he needed from the folk movement and then went on to greater commercial success and you know you're feeling a little like hey you know what was this this guy just showed up wrote some great songs yeah but he just kind of dabbled in this for a couple of years with no real commitment to the politics or to the social aspect of it, and then went on to sell a bunch of records. And I'm mad about that. And you can see those people's point of view, but then you also look back and say, yeah, but the music he's making in 1965, 66 couldn't have been made without folk music because it's got the brains of the folk music in it. It's got the sound of rock music, but it's got the brains and the heart of the folk and the blues, which is, I would think, that is respecting the art form. It's taking it in a new way, but it's like, well, why can't folk music sound? Like I said, why can't it sound like this? Why does it, why does folk music have to sound a certain way? Why can't it sound like Maggie's farm? Why can't it sound like, like a Rolling Stone? And now I will say, you know, some of the, fo- again, the, the fact that some of this footage is available still, that it still looks as good as it is. is just amazing. I can't imagine what Bob Dylan's archives look like. It must just be oh. unbelievable. The footage they've got. But yeah, it's like you're, it is kind of like, and, and all of it again, distilling it down into this one guy. And it is, again, it's fun to see him. I mean, sure, he's got the mask on. Anytime a camera goes on, he's got the mask on because he knows there's a camera on him. But again, it's, it's fun to see him as kind of like this normal guy because you can only imagine the pressures he was under when everybody was pointing to him as the single guy, even the Beatles could disperse the fame across the four of them, but it's all down to one guy. And again, like the film, you know, there's that sequence where he, somebody, they, they get the word that like someone said, he's going to shoot him and he's back in his dressing room. And he's like, you know, he's like, I don't mind getting shot. I just want to know who's, who did it or whatever. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. people are joking. And you're like, eh, what we know of today, that's the sixties. People got shot all the damn time. Right. They yeah. don't now, but I mean, famous people got shot all the damn time, and other people are like, "Ha ha ha, Bob, isn't that funny?" It's like, that really wasn't that funny. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, you make a su- such a good point in saying that. Uh, in that, the documentary isn't exactly uh, making fun of the folk musicians or the the audience of the time, and and also at the same time, the fact that, that um, you know it is being distilled all to him. Like it's all being put on him. And I think it does do a good job of sort of balancing, not the blame, but the understanding between the two of them of why they would be frustrated because I think, who is it? Um, uh, I, I want to say it's Pete Seeger, but I, 
that doesn't sound right. But one of the interviewees, when they're talking about the uh, folk Newport Folk Festival, when he was doing Maggie's Farm, uh, like you were saying about him, that work would not be possible without the folk scene, is that he says, oh, he's doing a play on a folk song. I can't remember what, I should have written it down. I can't remember what song it was, but he was taking and, and um, changing and sort of reworking a folk song um, and just making it electric and, and using some words and stuff like that. And it seemed like, you know, he appreciated the moment and then you see the reaction and you maybe want to go along with that reaction or something. And um, I think it's, there's a good opportunity to talk about, I, I was thinking about that artistic obligation of, between the the artist and, and the audience in terms of giving the people maybe what they want and doing what you want um and i don't know what your thoughts are on that but i feel like i, I was thinking about this during all the booing and during the mm-hmm. newport folk festival um because i don't think that bob had any obligation to play the protest music or to play acoustic or or whatever um or keep writing or working for that scene but i also don't think that the audience had any obligation to follow him to where he was going and it, um i guess the issue lies in the fact that the audience uh may i don't know maybe the audience wasn't sticking to their side of of that bargain but at the same time he was going i don't know they're going to the concerts and, and you know they're paying money for a ticket and they're going to the concerts and bob is going to a folk festival you know and playing trying to play electric which um is cool you know like you, i i don't know about you but i think of it as like a really kind of cool punk rock move oh but surely, and i think yeah. A, yeah i think a lot of people think of it that way most people now at least um but at the same time you know like it even though it does seem kind of lame kind of paints that crowd as philistines a little bit it is hmm. kind of understandable that um uh that you would go expecting to hear acoustic and violins and fiddles and everything and then be end up with that with Maggie Maggie's farm but <laughs> 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 like, what <laughs> what what is this yeah yeah it, i you call it punk rock and again i feel that that's a you know that's really accurate cuz you think about the way we live now right where all the algorithms exist for is to give us what they what it thinks we already want right that's all that we get is you like this we'll try this you like this you're like that you know and it's always just about giving people what they want giving them um you know a slightly modified version of the thing they liked you know the four quadrant movie you know oh it's got this or that or whatever and you know i engage in that stuff as much as anybody else i've seen every marvel movie yada 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 but here you've got bob dylan like actively giving an audience something it doesn't want like <laughs> actively yeah. being like on purpose on purpose and <laughs> yeah it again it, it it would be easy to pick on these people as a bunch of squares but Scorsese's a, a bit a bit beyond that a bit above that because again you it's as you say it's yeah the audience isn't under any obligation to say yeah i like this if they don't like it you know you could again you could look back and say well couldn't you appreciate how good it was well I don't know. There's lots of things that I don't appreciate now. Maybe in 30 years, I will. You know, I don't know. Now, hopefully, there's not any footage of me not liking that thing. So I won't be <laughs> yeah. embarrassed in a movie 30 years later. But yeah. still, you know, I mean, it's like, yeah, you could say, you know, I mean, imagine if you'd gone to see a concert of somebody you like now. And then they, I mean, okay, we won't get in. I don't, we don't need to get into specifics because I don't like to run other people down on the show. But like, we all know 
there are lots of musicians who are very famous who in some ways have taken weird turns mm. about their politics or the, oh, you know, yeah. and you're all of a sudden <laughs> like, what the hell happened to this guy? You know what yeah. I mean? Like, and you're like, how could, you know, the, the, like, okay, one example, I'm sorry, I can't help it, but like the one example, like <laughs> I think of is like Morrissey, right? Like, oh, yeah. I'm not a, I'm not a big, big particular fan of his. I never was, but. I what I know about him from people that are fans of him, like he's turned very, very racist and mm-hmm. very like kind of anti-Semitic and stuff, and very, very cruel towards people. And I'm like, this is the guy that wrote "There Is a Light That Never Goes Out," like co-wrote that song, which is like one of the most empathetic songs I've ever heard, and now he's mm-hmm. turned into this guy. And in that case, I, yeah, the audience can be like off marcy i don't want that you know yeah. that's not what i want what happened to that you know so yeah you the artist has every room to grow but yeah you're right the the audience isn't under any particular obligation to say yeah i'm going to just eat up anything you hand me because maybe what you're handing me is inferior or i don't want it i'm a, I'm a person with my own thoughts and feelings and i don't want this you know so yeah it's it, it's interesting because I and I don't know not to get off too much on too much of a tangent but I think that you know talking about the algorithms and stuff now that are you know the artists and the and the listeners alike are trying to to follow the algorithm and uh you know bend to its whims and stuff um it I feel like what I've noticed in terms of one's obligation or lack thereof of sticking with an artist is that people now feel more obligated to be like, okay, if you loved um, the way I can't think about a current artist, but like, I'm just going to say someone like Drake or something like that. Okay, sure. Like if you loved Drake in the early, his earlier career and, um, and now maybe his stuff isn't as good or you don't like it as much. It feels like people feel an obligation to defend that either previous appreciation for the artist's work or to defend the current work that people don't like as much or, or you individually don't like as much to be, to sort of uh, Stockholm syndrome yourself <laughs> into believing that you like it just because mm-hmm. it's the one artist that you used to, that you really like their other work or their earlier work. And it, I think that does in a way go back to, you know, the issue of someone like Morrissey where, you're like, oh my God, how could you write something like that and not understand, you know, not feel a certain way or or now shift to this other view? Like, how is that possible? I feel like that sort of extends where people are like, and I don't know, sometimes this has more merit, it's more true, but people feel like, oh my God, if he's like this now, I can't enjoy what I liked before. Um, and not just in terms of politics or, or whatever, but just the work, you know, if mm-hmm. you just don't yeah. like what... Wor- someone starts doing oh like this is a good example because it's not anything to do with politics or anything like that but like Mumford and Sons I really liked their earlier stuff and since they sort of went away from appropriately appropriately the um folk sound and and things like that I don't like their stuff as much and so I just don't listen to them and Mm -hmm. like I don't like it but you know some people do and I don't think that's bad you know and I think that is sort of an interesting um impulse that people have to be like you either like all of someone's work and you defend it you know you had die on that hill or um you don't like any of it and it all sucks and whoever likes it also sucks i don't know yeah no i know i've experienced that myself i mean that there are some 
Bob songs that I genuinely don't like very much. I mentioned Bound yeah. in Plain D and everyone knows how much I don't like Joey and stuff. And I've, I've heard from people that are like, you know, oh, you're not really a fan if you don't like this. I'm like, really? Oh, come like, on. I can't like, like, cause to me, it's like, well, if it's all, if, if it's all great, then none of it's great because the right. whole reason that you figure out something is great is because it stands above the other things. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> like, come on. Yeah. It's okay. Not every, not every utterance or every piece of art that this man, Bob Dylan, has ever created is genius, transcendent. Not all of it. Most, a lot of it. A lot of it. <laughs> a lot of it. That's what makes him so special, but not all of it. It can't be. And, and it, it's not, it, it reminds me of that quote. I think it's from uh, the late Lester Bangs, who was at the, I haven't read a lot of Lester Bangs, but I think he said it that like he was pretty hard on Bob in the sixties. Like he was kind of like a guy who was not bending the knee compared to a lot of critics but then later on he was actually much more favorable to bob in the 80s so he was kind of reversing it where everyone was slagging on him and he kind of had a quote which was something like the automatic way people bash bob dylan in the 80s is the complete inverse to how reflexively they were praising him in the 60s which -hmm. means they weren't listening then and they're not listening now and I thought wow. that's interesting. You know, he was saying, okay, I'm taking, I'm hearing something that no one else is hearing, but you were ripping me when I was saying that I wasn't hearing the great thing that you see. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's yeah. kind of going back and forth. So I was like, oh, that's okay. No, that's interesting. Now I don't, I, this isn't exactly, this is, I'm not making a great segue here, but there's something I wanted to ask you and I don't want to forget it. Yeah. Of course. Sometimes that happens. And, and I, we, you know, I get off the show and I record it. I'm like, damn it. I mean to ask it. <laughs> so you mentioned having seen the Rolling Thunder review documentary right and we know now that there's some bullshit in that (laughs) we know there's some made-up stuff there's fake anecdotes uh there's an interview featuring someone who does not actually exist uh where michael murphy plays a character from a an old uh miniseries called tanner he plays a a, a politician named tanner in that miniseries and he's in the documentary as if he's a real guy and it's like huh um now, I never got any sense from watching No Direction Home that any of it is contrived or fake. Mm. I never got that sense. But having then seen Rolling Thunder after this, I go back and I say, is there something I'm missing in No Direction Home that's not real? Did you get that sense at any part that there was some part of it? I mean, obviously, people can tell anecdotes that aren't accurate because they're either they're lying or they don't. They, they're remembering something incorrectly mm-hmm. but did you get the sense of anything in no direction home was totally made out of whole made up out of whole cloth the way we have in rolling thunder you know that's funny because i was thinking about that while watching and in terms of the filmmaking itself i don't i don't i did not get that sense from anything the only time where i sort of thought about that and i think i even wrote down a couple of things to say to ask you like if you thought it was bullshit or not um but i i don't think that if only just because of the the way in which the film was made you know the uh interviews being done first probably like you said before just for prosperity's sake and then posterity's sake um and then and then later scorsese coming in and editing um and i saw a quote too on on wikipedia i think it was just on wikipedia but um where when the film came out, they Dylan's camp said that uh, he didn't have any involvement with the documentary. And it said, 
Dylan has no interest in this. Bob truly does not look back, um, which is funny considering <laughs> in 2019 they did he he they did rolling thunder but um which i think i you know i don't know all about the production of it but i think it was more it had to be more uh he had to be more involved with that one but uh yeah i i didn't get any sense that there was anything that was purposefully made up but i was sort of wondering you whenever Bob talks, I sort of like half assume that he's lying in a way. And there's even a part of the documentary that uh, acknowledges that where one of them says he, you know, he told me about how he lived in uh, like Texas and oh yeah, I grew up in Florida New and Mexico. Like, yeah. Yeah. New Mexico. Yeah. He, he lived <laughs> in New Mexico. And I think part of that, you know, was him, wishing or feeling like he was from somewhere else or that he was wasn't in the right place and yeah one of my favorite parts is just in the first five minutes i think where he says like when he listened to that music the music that he found he felt like he wasn't where he belonged like it it made him a part of something else and so yeah so I, i sort of have to assume that he's lying about stuff but i've always wondered and i want your opinion on if he's telling the truth about seeing and, and singing to Woody Guthrie at the end of his life, um, which apparently he handed a, it, it was like a napkin or a piece of paper or something. That like was a card. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it was like a card. Um, but other than that, I feel like it's probably true because he didn't have that sly smile on his face that he usually does when he's lying. <laughs> but um, I don't know. Do you think that's true? <laughs> I've heard that story for so long that I I've accepted it that it's true. It yeah. does feel a little too perfect, uh, you know. Right. But of course, of course, things that are true don't have to worry about sounding true because mm-hmm. they're just true. But it does sound a little too perfect. Of like, oh wow, Bob Dylan went and visited the dying Woody Guthrie, and you know, sang him his songs, and it was kind of a quite literal. Well, not literal, but almost, you know, this metaphorical passing of the torch from one generation to the next. And boy, isn't that all neatly wrapped up in a little bow? Right. Um, I always I've heard it so long, too, that I just I never questioned it. And then the only time that I thought about that was rewatching it um, and taking notes. And I just thought that might be bullshit. Like, that might be fake. (laughs) But I don't know. I don't think. I don't know if there was anybody else in the room, like if there was a, a, a concurrent witness, like, I don't know if there was a third person that was ever able to say, yeah, I was there. I saw it happen. I don't, you know, um, like I said, it never would have occurred to me that anything would have been faked in this movie until I saw Rolling Thunder and there was stuff that it was clearly. And even then it's only, I, you know, the, not, again, we'll, you know, we could save this conversation for another day. But even when I was watching that and they got to the part with like Sharon Stone and she's like, oh, I met Bob yeah. when I was 15. I was like, really? And, it, you know, but I'm like, all right, I guess. I mean, I've never heard that story. That seems, but, and, but even that I bought, but it was only till the part where we got to the, the bit with the Tanner that I went, wait, you're like, I know oh, that hold guy. On. <laughs> it's so it's funny because uh, i guess yeah we we can save this but yeah i think with that there are certain things where you know maybe you might have to look them up to find out if they're true but i feel like there's just enough in there that will make you you know if you recognize that actor or if you just think about the timeline of 
you know, how old Sharon Stone had to have been. Or, right, or, right. You yeah. know, when he's talking about getting the idea for the face makeup from Kiss and Kiss didn't do that until much right. later. <laughs> and like, there's enough there that makes you question yeah. what they're saying and therefore be forced to question the rest of the, the whole rest of it, um, which I think is so genius. And I, um, and I think it, it fits with his Dylan's personality so well of, never revealing too much and the whole thesis of okay i can't talk too much about rolling thunder but the whole thesis Hmm. it lines up with the thesis of that film but to bring it back to no direction home a little bit but um this film feels like and, and you know making up stories and everything have you seen um i'm sure you have have you seen the uh the man who shot liberty valance oh sure sure uh you know how in the end they say uh when the legend becomes fact print print the legend legend. sure and it feels like this film this documentary is a little bit choosing to print the legend in a way um or at least allowing you to decide in your mind if you want to do that or not because um it keeps things it does the opposite of what most documentaries do at certain points which is to keep things mysterious um even when it has perhaps has a choice not to um because you know the whole thing at the Newport Folk Festival, and this has to do with the fallibility of people's memories and stuff. But um, you know, did Pete Seeger really have an axe? Because he kind of says, "I felt like if I had an axe, I could do it." And then someone else goes, "Oh, I heard Pete Seeger had an axe and was going <laughs> to cut the wire." Um, and then, or you know, was he actually? Did he actually hate the music, or was he just upset that his father was was sort of distressed because of the noise? Um, and then and then Bob says the thing about making the deal with the devil instead of sort of being pushed to say <laughs> like, Oh yeah, I practiced really hard. And I was like, which is, you know, probably what happened is that he just mm-hmm. got dedicated himself to learning and that's how he got it good so fast. And then um, the whole thing with his name where someone else says, I, I think it was um, uh, the uh, Liam Clancy who yeah. says, Oh, it was because of Dylan Thomas. He, you know, he named himself after Dim- Dylan Thomas. And then it cuts to Dylan and he goes, well, I don't know why I chose that name or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it constantly sort of just leaves things up in the air in a way that I think a lot of documentaries wouldn't choose to do. Because I think it's always true that people remember things differently or misremember them, you know, not on purpose, but they just remember things differently. And usually a documentary will sort of choose a narrative to go down, like to... Mm-hmm to follow one person or the other's memory more so than, than another's. And what this doc, this documentary doesn't do that. And I think that's so interesting because it does make you question what's true and what's not. And I think that is part of, part of what Bob does in general. And that makes him so fascinating. So I think. Yeah. I'm one of the, again, I never watching the movie over again. And I just watched it a couple of days ago again, in, in anticipation of this, None of this jumps out and there isn't any part of it that jumps out of me as, as contrived or phony or, or, I mean, it's willing to, as you say, tell a story from, you know, kind of the Rashomon style of tell a story from multiple angles. And that's how this guy remembers it. That's how this guy remembers it. This is how Bob remembers it. Doesn't necessarily, you know, and that's for you to decide. All right. Well, the truth is somewhere in the mix there in the Venn diagram of these three stories. But like, I noticed for like some of the subjects. Now I know just on a purely visual standpoint, when you are cutting to this many different interview subjects, I mean, this thing interviews, you know, probably what, like at least 50 people, at least, 
that many different people, you want to have very clearly understood visual identifiers. So you're not confused as to who this person is and where they are and what, you know what I mean? You want to have like Joan Baez is always pictured outside of her, the archival footage. She's always in her kitchen right? with that very warm kind of brown lighting. Right. And then you've got uh, Maria Moldauer sitting in her, what looks like a restaurant or something. Yeah. She's in like a booth and like a Bennigan's or something. And there's like a, there's like a guy in the booth behind her. I'm like, what is that? Is that guy? Like, what is, like, yeah. Who's that guy? Is he ordering his mozzarella sticks? Like what's it? Why is she there? Like, I don't understand. But the one, when I was watching it over the one bit where I just kind of went, huh, that's a funny choice. And I think it's the guy, I don't remember his name. I, again, I should have written it down. I'm sorry. But I think it's the guy who was um, the guy from Folkways records talking about Bob in the young, in the very early days. And they show him in like this basement. I, and, and it's oh, like, yeah. like all of this shit is behind him. Like he looks like he's in a hoarder house. And I remember thinking, really? That's where you chose to sh-? like, that's where he chose to be shot for a documentary is in this cruddy basement with piles of paper and crud and various detritus around. And it just <laughs> made me be like, are they kind of like casting him a little as like, oh, he's the kind of put upon folk guy? You know, I mean, again, I'm not saying it's not genuine, but I'm just wondering, like, you really could have put him at a desk and an office. Right. You know, you that's- didn't have to put him in this cruddy basement. And I'm like, are they just kind of underlying, underlining, like, that's who this guy was? You know, that's who you're that the guy you're imagining. That's who he was, because let's put him in this background. Yeah, I it's so funny because the first time I watched this with uh, a friend, the very first time that I watched it, you know, 2021 or last year or something. Um, and we were we laughed immediately laughed so hard because the first interviewee that comes up is Liam Clancy and he's in like an Irish pub. Right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's so corny. It, it's so, and he's drinking a beer and um, and it's so literal like you were saying it's 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 such a one-to-one ratio of what their either their personality or what a signifier of who they are is to what you're seeing on screen and i don't know i i mean i don't i guess scorsese didn't do that um because he was just editing and it's funny to imagine uh uh jeff rosen sort of constructing all of that but and the guy that you're talking about if I don't know. Maybe we're not thinking of the same person, but uh, also thinking about uh, the guy again. Don't remember his name. That's all right. The guy who ended up playing uh, organ or or electric piano on like a Rolling Stone. And oh, Al, had, Al Cooper. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Um. Yeah. So I think this. We're. Th- I think I know who you're talking about. But yeah, him too. It looks like he might be in his own house or studio or something. But yeah, he's like surrounded by stuff as well. And yeah, the, it's sort of those scenes. And I. I don't know. I'm not convinced that that's really Joan Baez's actual kitchen. I think it might be a set. But like the, it does sort of make you question the authenticity of it because it's not just a talking head with a black background or or you know sitting in a in an office like you said and or yeah the the part at the restaurant is so weird with you know that that was just a guy that they had on set sitting behind her for probably hours (laughs) um and so i just 
yeah, it does. That's true. It does sort of make you question, uh, not the validity of what they're saying, but the validity of what the documentary is saying in a way of like why certain things are being presented to you in one way or another. Right. But again, I also know that that might just be a good way of visualizing of like just a shorthand of like, okay, for those of you who don't know what a folk raise records was, this is kind of, this was sort of the milieu. I mean, he looks, he looks like the real life version of what we see in to bring it up again inside Llewellyn Davis, where he goes to audition for that, um, the, 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 the recording guy played by F. Mary Abraham. Mm-hmm. And that guy is in this office with all this crap all over the place. And it just doesn't give you the sense of like, Oh, this is like a really high end office. It's like this guy can't be bothered to clean up his office. And I'm sitting yeah. here auditioning for, I'm playing my folk music for this guy. Meanwhile, he's smoking six cigarettes and there's a phone ringing and there's piles of paper. <laughs> maybe that's what the guy really was. You know, maybe that's really, by the way, you, you, you mentioned that quote that Bob has and it's one of my favorite things i've ever heard him say period across was the idea of that when he heard the music in the on the radio that pirate radio and specifically he mentions the song drifting too far from shore where he says i felt like i wasn't where i was supposed to be and i had to find my way home and i thought that was an incredibly profound way of 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 putting that idea across that like you have a sense on a spiritual level that you might've been born in this area, in this circumstance, in this time, but that's not where you're meant to be. And you got to find your way home. Like I find that to be very profound. And, and, and I will, I, it, I will, I can think about like in my own life where like, and, um, I, I think I've mentioned in, in other episodes where we've talked about traveling and stuff. Like I can remember I've, I've lived in the Northeast my whole life. I've always lived, I've always lived here and not by choice. It's just my friends are here. I went to school here. You know, my life I got jobs here. My life is here. And I can remember the first time I set foot in California and I had this overwhelm and it was like one foot out of the airport. You know, <laughs> it wasn't even like I was deep into California but I remembered feeling something that I wasn't prepared for this feeling of, of like, well, I think I'm, I think I'm where I'm supposed to be. And, and then just recently uh, we were down in Florida for seven weeks uh, and we were, I was recording shows while I was down there, but we're, and, and it's beautiful down there. I've never spent a winter in sunny climes. I've always been okay. in the Northeast, but this time I spent Thanksgiving and Christmas with shorts on, you know, <laughs> in the yeah. sun. And I was like, I felt so comfortable. And now I've been home. I've been back to New Jersey for a couple of days. And I'm already like, I, I'm not, I don't think this is my home anymore. You know, <laughs> like it mm. feels like that. And I'm well. hearing Bob say that of feeling that when you were 15, 14, Having that thought, and maybe he couldn't even verbalize it. He's, you know, he's again with the benefit of age, he's able to put it together in his words. With you, know, but I just thought that was incredibly profound. And the fact that, you, as you say, he mentions it—it's like the first eight, first five minutes right. of the movie that he puts that idea home of the idea of, you know, I'm not where I'm not where I'm supposed to be, and the, for me, the music is going to get me there. This music I'm hearing coming over that pirate radio station is pointing me to where i need to go i just thought that was absolutely amazing and that it's why it's like even though 
I love this documentary and I love everything about it. It's it's almost like boy, it was worth it just for just for that little clip because I I just it's, I just thought man, yeah, that's exactly it, Bob. He, again, he crystallizes it down into like two sentences. Yeah, and I completely agree. I think it's such a it's such a simple. He does this so much, but it's such a simple way to communicate that feeling that I think. I think everyone's had in, in one way or another of feeling either like you don't belong somewhere or that you finally do, like you, yeah. you said. Um, and he talks about that so much. I mean, the documentary is called No Direction Home and it, the whole <laughs> right. the whole thing feels like, I think it is sort of framed in a way where that switch to electric and and everything is the home that he was going toward the whole time, maybe. But it does feel like the whole or his whole career or his whole life was him just trying to find to chase that feeling of of finally feeling like he is where he needs to be, no matter what other people thought. Um, and he obviously did. It seemed like he did care at least a little bit about certain people, what they thought of him. And. And it, I don't know, I feel like. I had a thought, but that I can't remember. But um, it reminds me of it's sort of funny when I don't think I've I've told anyone else this, but uh, I recently went to uh, Europe. I started in the UK, and I was traveling around a little bit, and before I did some school in England, and literally my first day, I had landed like two hours before or something you know my plan landed it was you know like a 15 hour ordeal of flying and everything and I basically hadn't spoken to another human being except for a TSA agent um <laughs> since I had left uh I had left home that day and um I I was feeling kind of strange and I was wearing a Bob Dylan shirt and and it's just like a subterranean homesick blues shirt and I was walking, just walking around London and I had just checked into my hostel and, but had no idea what I was doing. And I was feeling a little bit weird. I think it was just because I was really tired, but I was feeling a little uh, dejected. And I passed by this guy who was walking his dog and I sort of bent down to pet his dog. And he just looked at me and he pointed at me and he went, the times they are changing, huh? (laughs) And I did not think about the fact that I for completely forgot I was wearing a Bob shirt, you know, like I just didn't even think about it. And uh, I had no, I was so, it shocked me so much. It like <laughs> took me out of my slump for a second. I, I was like, it, they really are. <laughs> and just kept walking. And it was such a weird moment, but it made me feel a little bit, also a little appropriate subterranean homesick blues. But um it made me feel a little bit more relaxed to because, you know, a couple of minutes later I was like, Oh, it's because I'm wearing a Bob Dylan shirt, but it was just such a strange moment. And it, I don't know. I get reminded of that because of, you know, everyone has that music that they listen to and it either makes them feel at home or it makes them feel like they should be somewhere else. And I think Bob's music can be both for mm-hmm. myself and a lot of people. I don't know about you, but yeah, that's marvelous though. That's great. But yeah. You had that, you know, that he just maybe didn't even have a connection with him, but he had it for a second, but he just knocked you out of your funk 
just long yeah. enough, you know? Yeah. That's great. That's really fun. <laughs> that's really funny that's cool yeah it was weird I, I, it took me a minute to because re- i was so tired it took me a second to realize what was going on but i was like totally man <laughs> that's great oh my god that's wonderful so okay i mean the film is over three hours and we could talk for three hours about it and so you know we don't want to go on too much longer but there is something else i wanted to ask you about before we as we as we sort of get to wrapping up is we haven't really talked much about the music in this film mm, which is yeah. i mean good lord um there's you know dozens of clips of bob performing uh, as well as other people you mentioned joan baez doing that you know a couple of lines from love isn't just a four-letter word and like crushing it you know in her kitchen or whatever she's doing but i, I want to ask you did you have a particular favorite clip of bob or performance that you know was like wow like, i've never heard that or even if you had her be haven't seen you hadn't seen it uh, was there anything that really, you know, jumped out at you? Um, I, it's so hard to choose the, it, all of the electric stuff and, and him performing to booing audiences. I love, I think it's hmm. fantastic, but, um, I think that little stretch, I'm not even sure it was, you know, in the 66 tour somewhere in the UK and he sings, uh, oh man, what was it? gates of eden mm-hmm. and right before oh it was um it's all right ma and i just love the way that he's he's delivering that there's there's, there's nothing particularly special about it i feel like there's there's a lot more way more interesting and, and hard to find and, and probably things that first surfaced in this documentary clips that are all fantastic especially of the earlier days but something about that performance and that song is just so good both of those songs are so good that really i just love i replayed it a couple times while i was watching it just because it's so good and i will never i've never loved anything more <laughs> any performance more than him doing maggie's farm at the newport hmm. folk festival just because it, i think it's the coolest thing anyone's ever done and it's like my favorite decision anyone's ever made in, in like hmm. music history i think it's the coolest thing ever and he performs it so well and you know they were talking about the the speakers and everything sounding bad but i don't know where they got the audio from but the audio sounds fantastic Mm -hmm. just like we were talking about a lot of the the clips that they used how the quality is so good and how they've either restored them and everything but the um the sound sounds so good in in that scene and i just i love listening to it i go back and i just watch it on youtube sometimes because it's so (laughs) awesome um but yeah what about you what's i feel like you probably have more interesting picks but i just Uh, no there but no there there is a clip from the 66 tour where he's doing an acoustic desolation row and you can sort of tell i think he's probably i don't know if he if he's not on some mind-altering substance he's probably so tired that he's like pushed into like another zone. You know, you get that thing where you're so tired, but you keep going and then you're, you're not tired anymore. Like you're, you're running on pure adrenaline at that point. And there's just something about the way he sings it. And they, they, they you hear him sing about, I don't know, like three or four verses of not four verses, three or four lines. And uh, it's to me, it's so captivating. And part of it is the lighting. It's all just the sea of darkness and just his face with just the ever slight hint of like the you know, the Carnaby suit that he's got. But he just sings about the, you know, going to desolation row. And I'm like, I can't imagine what that would be like 
I've never heard Bob Dylan live acoustic by himself that he's, he hasn't done that in so long. I haven't, I've never seen it uh, except the, the 30th anniversary concert where he sang a couple of songs all by himself. But other than that, it's always been with a band, but hearing him just sing this, you know, stripped down version of desolation Road, but just putting all of the, energy into the words is I, I want the I every time it cuts away from that I want to keep hearing I'm like oh no no wait no 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 no, no I want to hear you know I mean I think that's the I think I can't I don't know if that's the exact version that's on the bootleg series that was released in conjunction with this because I mean there's probably multiple versions of it but man I love it so much and I wish I could hear the whole song because it's so good and it, it, that kind of going back on what I said earlier it does make me wonder like really how could you not like that how could you not, you know, how could you, yeah, how could, for you know, that'd be like, that's rubbish. Like, really? That's rub Desolation Row is rubbish, but you know, okay, maybe so. Um, yeah, if we're talking about reading into songs and stuff, come on, Desolation Row. Yeah, I mean, like, for Pete's sakes. Oh my God. Um, so, well, I, I am, I knew when we talked last, you hadn't seen this movie, you were going to see it. I knew that you were going to like it. I was just like, I think if anyone's, a halfway Bob Dylan fan is going to love this movie because it's it's wonderfully done. It's got you know Bob being very funny. Scorsese himself, of course, has a great sense of humor. He did you notice his his audio yes, his little cameo his cameo in the movie yeah. where he plays Bob saying the the that uh, when he got that award right. right after the Kennedy assassination and he yeah talks about and with James he, Baldwin in the room man yeah <laughs> and he's like oh I think I kind of see myself in Lee Harvey Oswald. It's like whoa. Oh, um, man. Talk about not reading the room, man. <laughs> so I love that Scorsese is the voice of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's so awesome. Marty showing oh, up I love there. That, man. But uh, yeah, it's it's just an absolutely tremendous accomplishment. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, again, being able to get Martin Scorsese to edit your film footage, uh, you know, that's the world Bob Dylan lives in. But I mean, man, they deliver. I've I've seen this film. 10 times already 10 or 11 times and it, yeah. it doesn't get it doesn't get boring it's on netflix amazingly mm-hmm. uh you know they haven't gotten rid of it yet to, to replace it with more you know love is blind or whatever but like <laughs> it's there uh you can watch it for free if you have netflix so i mean if anyone hasn't seen it i'd absolutely uh give it a chance but man i i'm i'm so glad that um you were willing to, yeah. I mean, you what you watch it on your own, but I'm so glad you were willing to talk with us about it because I'm wanting to get to this for a while. We did the show on Mr. Tambourine Man, and I was always like, let's do No Direction Home at some point. So I'm finally glad we had a chance to do it because, um, like I said, I love this movie and it's, you know, it's a big piece of the Dylan canon, uh, and especially his later period. And it just, and again, anytime you get to see him talk normal uh is so fun it's just so yes. so fun so so thank you so much for for doing this melissa i really appreciate it thank you so much it was so fun i'm so glad that i finally watched it and i scorsese is incredible and i hope he keeps i hope he never dies and keeps making films forever and especially if they're about bob so ah, um, yeah know. thank you so much yeah i um there was one last thing that i just wanted to say before we before we signed off oh mm-hmm. the last time we talked i had not seen bob in concert and i've seen since then i've seen him three times oh have you really yes. we didn't talk about this yes great um, yeah, all, I saw all him. rough and rowdy ways yeah yeah because I, I think yeah i just started the tour hadn't started yet i think the tickets were going on sale in a couple of days and we talked last and i saw him in uh 
in Ohio and not Cleveland and my friend lived there. Why am I blanking? Toledo? No. Columbus? Columbus. Yes. <laughs> just I saw even cities in Ohio. <laughs> just the only cities in Ohio. That's the only thing happening in Ohio. But yeah, I saw him. <laughs> Ouch. I saw him in um, Columbus and I saw him in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee and Asheville, North Carolina. And wow. they were all good in their different ways. The Knoxville one, ask me off the record what how the Knoxville one was, but it was really good. It had nothing to do with him. But yeah, uh, they were they were all really amazing. And I feel so lucky to have seen him this many times already. That's um, amazing. You know, in a That's short great. period of time. It was beautiful. I definitely cried like several times during both all of them. <laughs> I, I well, then I have to ask you. So, what was your re- what was your reaction? Did you have the same reaction that everyone has when you're there and he comes out for the first time and you have that realization, like, holy shit, that's the guy right there. That's the real that's, guy. That was the craziest part because so the first time I saw him in Columbus and then the last time I saw him in Asheville, I was there alone, um, and so I kind of had no one to be kind of freaking out with and uh he it was such a strange feeling and i get the same feeling when you know i'm at an art museum and i look at a painting from 1432 or something where i'm like it's insane to think that everything you know the rock history and the stuff that everyone knows about and the stuff that you know people just like you and me know about you know the more niche things um and all of his performances and the things, the albums that I love, like all of it came from him and he's right in front of me on that stage. It's so crazy. It's such a strange feeling. And it was, I think he sounded great. You know, it was kind of like the footage that we see in No Direction Home walking out. I heard a couple people complaining and saying it was bad and hmm. I could not disagree more. <laughs> I thought it was awesome. Yeah, That's it was such great. a strange feeling but it was amazing i when he played um i think my favorite part of almost all of them was him playing uh uh, i've made up my mind to give myself to you because Mm. that's probably my favorite song off that album and it makes me like cry every time and seeing him do it in person i will not lie i shed several tears (laughs) oh that's wonderful that's great that's a great experience that's that is awesome that's great you get to see him in three different towns too you know that's really cool you gotta kind of uh, not globe hopping, but country hopping. That's really cool. That's fantastic. That's great. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Uh, yeah. That's that's awesome. I'll look forward to hopefully you get to see him more when he swings back around again. I um, hope so. I'm looking forward to it. So before we wrap up, uh, I have to ask uh, the, the normal exit question, uh, which I, I was different than when you were on the show the last time. But the one I'm asking now is, you know, what album, what recording session would you want to sit in on? I'm going to change it a little bit Ooh. in the spirit of this episode in that of all the Bob Dylan films. Now, it's, I know the answer is probably this one, but I'm going to ask you anyway. <laughs> of all the Bob Dylan films that you could be a fly on the wall for, you're sitting, you know, camera left, and you're what? Pat Garen, Billy the Kid, or Masked oh, and man. Anonymous, or No Direction Home, or Hearts of Fire, oh, or, or his videos, even... any of his vi- anything with a visual component. What would you like to sit and watch get filmed? Rob, I did not even think about. Pat Bear, Pat Garrett, and any of his narrative. <laughs> Don't films. look back. You're opening Eat the document. Up the world for me. It's this all crazy. The subterranean homesick blues video. You could be in the background with Ginsburg and the other guys. Oh man, the cards. Okay, I think with some. Oh man, this is so hard. I think <laughs> it would have to be. Here's a okay. Here's an answer for you. 
Ronaldo and Clara is what I would be on a fly on the wall. <laughs> you would for. that certainly that would certainly get you the most bang for your buck in yeah. terms of hours logged. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I think that would be absolutely insane because I would love to I would love to see his process behind that and perhaps uh have him cast me in a role if I was there. Maybe I could play Bob Dylan. Maybe I sure, could be the why not? Bob Dylan. If other people it's about half a dozen other people did, why not? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I. It's just, I don't know. I think maybe a little bit of a hot take, but I think Ronaldo and Clara is awesome, and it's actually good, and um, in a way, and yeah, I I think that would be so cool because it was just such a weird thing for him to do, (laughs) and one that feel like no one thinks or knows or talks about, and um, you know, Joan Baez is there mm-hmm. on the whole Rolling Thunder tour. His too, wife so. is there. Sarah is there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. So it would be it would be crazy. I so I choose Ronaldo and Clara. All That's right. it. Fair enough. I I don't think the phrase "hot take" and Ronaldo and Clara have ever been in the same <laughs> sense before. So congratulations, Melissa. <laughs> thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Done something new in the annals of Bob Dylan fandom. So well, write again, it down. Yeah, write it down. Yeah, jot it down. It was okay. The episode was released on January seventh. Uh, well, anyway, thank you, thank you so much uh, for doing this and coming back. It, it's always a, a delight to talk to you, and I hope you can come back sooner than you know, almost two years since the last one. Let's not make it uh, two whole years. So. Again, thank you so much for for coming on the show again. It's always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. It was fun. Excellent. So, of course, everybody, you want to find back episodes of the show, go to our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to Pod Dylan on any podcatcher of your choice. And if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, of which Pod Dylan is a part, just go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast like these fine folks did. Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hussle, George Doherty, Joaquin Meckel. Paul Ruther and Henry Bernstein. Thanks so much, guys. So that's going to do it. Uh, Happy 2023, everybody. Uh, We will see you next week. Bye. Liam was uh, profound. He would, uh, uh, you know, besides all of his uh, rebel songs and his his acting career, he he would have these incredible sayings. Like once uh, he said to me, uh, after about 30 pints of Guinness, he was saying, remember, Bob, no fear, no envy, no meanness. Uh, hmm. Right.